This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Bohr, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you this week? Hey, Robert. I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Anything uh, <laughs> exciting going on on your side of the world? Oh, my goodness, man. No, nothing super exciting. I mean, I'm I, I this whole idea. I know we t- we talked last week about um, that. I had found out about getting tenure and yeah. I feel like that's definitely been settling. It's just a totally different. I don't know. It's just really different in a good way, but it's such a different shift from being on tenure track to then shifting to being like, oh, I, I'm done. I can breathe. Like it's, I yeah. don't, you know, it's done. So anyways, I'm just kind of, you know, swimming in that space a little bit right now and enjoying yeah. that Waco is finally getting some nice, pretty weather after like a week of like rain and gray. And <laughs> it's just nice getting some sunshine and starting to see yeah. spring pop up yeah. a little bit. So, but yeah, that's what's been happening in Oxy and their home. How's, how's everyone in your home doing? Good. Definitely. It has been rainy here as well, but today is pretty beautiful outside, but uh, yeah. yeah no, no, nothing too exciting. No, that's well, good. Well, hey, let me ask you this in terms uh-huh. of like, you know, we're always looking for kind of fun questions. Uh-oh. Is there anything that oh, you man. could just eat with with no stopping, like until <laughs> you barfed or something like that? Like that you is so good that you're like, I would just eat this oh, forever if man. somebody left me with a big pile of it. Oh my gosh, I have no idea. I think it's funny that you're asking that, though, at the start of Lent when I'm, like, trying to give things up right now. Um, Maybe it's a good – well, and (laughs) what's kind of funny is uh, obviously in last week's episode and this one, right, um, Seth talks about things like this. So uh, things that we use, but I don't know. Anything pop into mind? You know, I don't know. The first thing that I think of is red velvet cake. That's actually my favorite type of cake. So that's, like, the first thing that I think of, but – I'm also a big fan of chocolate. I mean, that's probably, mm. oh, and, okay. Okay, oh, this is There you is go. It. Now we've, yeah. got, we've got it going. <laughs> I found it. It's um Cadbury mini eggs. Um, okay. I have, grow- yeah, that's like a big thing in my past. I had a family member growing up who would buy like a big box of Cadbury mini eggs. So there would be like 50 bags of this in this box. And um, that was kind of like, a family go-to thing. We just always had Cadbury mini eggs around this time of yeah. year. And it is like my favorite Easter candy. So yeah. anyways, that would probably oh, be it for me. What about you? Well, it's fu- it's funny that yours is an Easter <laughs> thing because what inspired this question was mm. the other day Brooke brought me home, just had surprised me with a giant family size bag or whatever of mm-hmm. starburst jelly beans. 
Oh my gosh. And then she like had an event that night, so Gray went to bed and then I <laughs> and like, then the she came home later gone. and I said, You made you made a bad mistake. You left me <laughs> home with this bag of these because I I could just eat all of them con- like there's no yep. stopping until which yep. I actually did manage to pull myself together at this, you know, halfway no. through the bag and I thought, Hey, I gotta yeah, yeah, yeah. S- slow no. down here. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, without that conscious decision, there's no like I'm tired. They would have been now. gone. It would yes. yep. So that's right. Um, oh my gosh, that's yeah. so, so funny. It's oh, funny they're both Easter uh, kind of Easter ones there. Mm-hmm. I know. And maybe it's because of, I don't know, I feel like there's also that draw to it, the fact that, it, you know, we only get, like at least with Cadbury mini eggs, it's like once a year that it's like yeah. that they're on the shelves and then they're gone. And so I always feel that pull of like, oh, I need to get them now because I'm not going to yeah. get them later. And ugh, anyways. Well, I actually, just bringing up the Lent piece a bit ago, is there is that something that y'all practice? I think we started talking about that last week and you were like, it, is that right? Were we talking about last week, or maybe we yeah, edited so, it out? I, I don't remember. We did. Yeah, you <laughs> okay. started. To, you started to ask me like two weeks ago, and I didn't have an answer. And then you brought it back up last week because and I then, had said bring uh-huh. it up next week, and I still didn't have an answer. And I actually don't have an answer again. That's okay. What about you? I know. I think I've read uh, at least one thing you've written about maybe yeah. trying to slow down a little for Lent, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Lent is um, that's something that I've practiced. I mean, that was something growing up. I I did a lot and I really, I started to come to appreciate it a lot more just because it gives you that permission to unplug from something to kind of, to see what life is like without that thing or to, to just reframe your approach to certain things and not to approach it in like a legalistic way or like this, you know, white knuckled way, but at least to be like, okay, how can I navigate life without this thing that I tend to turn to when things are difficult? So yeah, that thing that you mentioned, um, Steve Austin, our dear sweet friend Steve. Hi, Steve. Um, mm-hmm. He is doing yeah. this. Uh, he's doing this forty days of letting go through the Lenten season, um, and has invited a number of us to um, submit a little something about what we're letting go of. And so I, um, so he had asked me to to send something in. And a, I'll say, you know, if you're hearing this, go ahead and sign up because I know I've started getting these emails in and. They're really great um, in terms of thinking about letting go of various areas of our lives or attachments that we have. But but I had written in this about just my awareness around busyness and being on research leave mm. this semester and having some space to slow down is really causing me to recognize ways in which my busyness has numbed me from basically my other numbing tactics. And so I kind of talk about some of those other numbing tactics underneath, but I'm, you know, by operating as fast as I have been in in so many ways, I'm just not even aware of the other unhealthy coping mechanisms I've used because I've been running so hard and so fast in a lot of different areas. And so that process of slowing down and mainly slowing down by letting go of Twitter just for a little bit of time and letting go of checking my email as often. You know, those are the things that I'm really trying to be mindful of um, this season. So yeah, I'm looking up which day yours is here. Oh, I don't know. It. I didn't even know he had it assigned for the days Let's yet. See, it looks like yours is March 10th. So oh, okay. 
So cool. yeah, that's cool. and having <laughs> having red ears. Uh, hopefully, you're proud yeah. of me saying that. But having no, you know, yeah. gotten a sneak preview of yours, yeah. I will say, you know, if people go and sign up for the project as a whole, they can definitely look forward to yours because I thought yours was great too. And there's a lot of great people on here. Uh, I'm scrolling through the list. I won't I won't list names necessarily because it's not my project, I guess. But there's a lot of people that if you're a fan of the show, you'll recognize. Listeners, go ahead and sign up with that. And, you know, especially as you're thinking about your Lenten season and if there's anything you want to share with us on what you're letting go of or giving up, you know, we'd love to hear it. So send that our way. But I do think that our episode this week fits in perfectly with, you know, this Lenten season, letting things go and yeah, continuing the conversation from last week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why don't you... Uh segue us in there that's yeah a great, i was thinking that as well so uh that's awesome Holly, why don't you tell us about this week's episode yeah so y'all we have seth haynes is back on the show for a part two of um our conversation with him and his new book the book of waking up last week's episode we had a little bit more um about his background that we talked about and some overarching themes and then this week we're diving more into some practical things for us to consider based on what he writes about in this book. And I really don't want to, I mean, I definitely want to leave room and get out of the way so that folks can just hear him talk about it. I, I loved it. And I think, you know, if we just roll right into it and let the conversation uh, speak for itself, because I think, you know, it's a, a great conversation. Again, I had fun editing back through it. So we'll just kind of go right into it. All right. Well, enjoy y'all. Again, this week, we have Seth Haynes coming on to talk with us a little bit more about his new book, The Book of Waking Up. Um, We talked a little bit about it last week and dove into a bit about his story, about coming clean, um, and some overarching points around various shapes of pain. But this week, we're going to shift more into some practical takeaways that um, we'll discuss with Seth about you know this process of waking up and how do we navigate these ways of numbing that we're becoming more aware of. Um, so first, Seth, thank you again so much for coming back onto the show. It's so good to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. It's It was fun last time, and I bet it'll be fun this time too. Yeah, <laughs> we're super excited for this. I was going to say for listeners, if you're just hopping on this one and you say, where's the normal bio and all that, go back and listen to the last one. We get obviously Seth's like long bio, but also he you know shared a lot of his story with us and kind of gave an intro into what we're talking about this week. So I definitely recommend go, scrolling back one in your, your podcast app and listening to that one too. Absolutely. Well, before we dive into this week's, I do want to revisit just to circle back as like a brief reminder for our listeners about particularly these three shapes of pain that you touched on last time and kind of what that divine love says on the other side of that of it. Would you mind kind of revisiting mm. those briefly? Yeah, yeah. So um, as I was writing this book, The Book of Waking Up, I kind of had this notion that there are about that, you know, there are three shapes of pain that everyone experiences, if we sort of boil it down, we can say the root pain is one of three things. And it's the pain of loss, the pain of scarcity, and the pain of abuse. And each of those three shapes of pain, in my estimation, as a storyteller, tells us, you know, a different kind of story. So the pain of loss says, I'm all alone, or I'll always be alone. Uh, The pain of scarcity says there's never enough. 
and the pain of abuse says no one is safe or the world is not safe or I am not safe. Um, and so as I kind of looked at uh, the shapes of pain that people have in their lives and the narratives that they tell themselves, um, this is kind of what I kept hearing over and over again. It, it existed in these sort of three buckets, so to speak. Yeah, that no, that makes perfect sense. And you unpacked that so beautifully last time. So it's it's important for us to be mindful of these three shapes of pain. Do you mind mentioning what the piece is on the other side of that, though? Yeah, so one way that I like to think this through is that divine love, the love of God, the voice of God, speaks the equal and opposite, if that makes sense. So uh, mm -hmm. the divine love of God uh, comes into our life, and it says, okay, well, we see that there is a shape of pain. For instance, um, the the pain of scarcity. Let's use that. There's never enough. That's the one I deal with. The divine love comes in and says, no, that's a false. That's a false narrative. That's a lie. There is enough. I am enough. Uh, the divine love is enough. And so it says the equal and opposite uh, message, so to speak. So if, if the um, narrative of the shape of pain is no one is safe, divine love comes in and says, no, I am a safe place. I can provide mm. safety. I'm the one that gives you safety. Um, if, if it is, uh, I'm all alone, the pain of loss, it is, no, you're not alone. I am with you even to the end of the age. That's what Jesus says. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. We're always connected. Um, and, and these, these counter narratives aren't just like heady notions, right? It's not just like some, uh, ephemeral pie in the sky, idealistic, uh, you know, voice or, or scrawlings in the scripture, it actually plays out in everyday life. You know, I can be really tortured by this narrative of scarcity, that there's never enough. But when I sit in the silence, sit in the solitude, I take this pain uh, to God and I listen, I begin to see all the places in my life where there is more than enough. I begin to see the goodness of God in the land of the living through the things he's created to draw me to him. I see that, you know what? I, I have enough food. I have a roof over my head. I have tons of love. I have plenty of family um, that I get to connect with and be with and share life with. Um, I have friends that I connect with and, and that I get to be with and share uh, life with. And all of these things bring me a certain sort of pleasure particularly when I run them through the filter of these are the gifts of God to draw me through to him, to combat the false narratives in my head. So when we think about these counter narratives of pain, it's really important that we realize that like these are tangible physical things that God has given us to speak against the narrative. Uh, narratives of pain. It's relationship, it's mm. food, it's clothing, it's shelter, it's safety. It's, you know, the the created stuff that draws us through to him. Hmm. Mm, gosh, that's good. That's I think so it's good because I, I think you're, the way you're describing it are kind of these like overarching narratives, right? Like this is a narrative mm -hmm. over my life because obviously there's moments where we say, okay, I'm not safe. And maybe that is like the realistic nature right. of what this situation, but kind of this overarching narrative of what's always true is I'm never safe. Nothing's ever safe. There's never enough, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of having these That's narratives right. against, against those. Mm -hmm. 
That's right. And, and the, the abuse one is really tricky. And so let's talk about that one for a minute. It's tricky for a lot, a lot of reasons. Um, and I'm not, again, I'm not a therapist. Y'all are the therapeutic minds in the room. It, you know, it, it can be tricky playing out long term, but even in the short term, it can be super tricky because maybe a person listening to this podcast is in an abusive relationship. Uh, maybe it's a sexually abusive relationship. Maybe it's a physically abusive relationship. Maybe it's a psychologically abusive relationship. And boy, is that running rampant these days. So there may be a time when the truth is like, I really am not safe. This really isn't safe. And so Seth, how are you telling me that, that God is your safety? Well, that's where I say like, that's what therapy, therapists are for. That's what mm -hmm. shelters are for. That's what safe place people are for, you know, to say, okay, recognize you're in an unsafe place. Recognize that as long as you're in that unsafe place, it can be really hard to hear the counter narrative and then do the work to find a safe place, to find someone to process with, to find those people that God's put in your life to draw you out of unsafety and into safety. Again, looking for a very tangible and real avenue, a very tangible and real and created outlet um, so that you don't just uh, sit in your room and sort of do head games thinking through, okay, it's safe, it's safe, I'm safe, I can be safe in God. Well, yeah, that's a, in a sense true, but if you continue to, to live in this sort of abusive milieu and environment, then, then safety can really f feel like it's never actually going to happen. You have to start to look for those places of safety that God has provided for us. Yeah. I'm really glad that Robert raised that question too, because I do think that it's important, you know, just trying to be able to discern through some of those um, differences of the in the moment versus that overarching narrative and reality versus kind of that narrative that we're telling ourselves. So I'm glad we, we touched on that. You do write about this acronym in the book that's the HALT acronym and kind of talk about how that's really helpful in starting to think about what it is that we turn to in difficult situations um, or when we're feeling uncomfortable or perhaps wanting to numb some of those um, uncomfortable emotions. Do you mind explaining to us that HALT acronym and how we would go about walking through that? Yeah, so this is, um, you know, I, I hope that a lot of the listeners have heard this. This is not my original uh, material. Um, I, I stole this from somebody who stole it from somebody who stole it from someone. But one of the things that we can begin to say, like, okay, Seth, you've said that, that all addiction is rooted in pain. I get it. Um, I can kind of see my pain points. Um, but I don't necessarily see what the thing is that I'm reaching for or what my addiction is, right? So to live this waking life, there are things that we have to know. We have to know, one, what is our pain? Two, what is the thing that we use to numb that pain? And then three, how can we wake out of that and into something better? So this is kind of in that second piece of the framework. How do we recognize or identify uh, the things that we use as uh, addictions or as coping mechanisms. And so one of the things that, um, that others have pointed to and that I point to is when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely, or when you're tired, what are the things that you reach for? I can tell you in any of those situations, um, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, 
when my willpower is low, right? That's why we're talking about this halt acronym. It's, 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 you know, when our willpower is at the lowest, when my willpower is low and I sense any sort of discomfort or any sense of pain, I'll turn to one of three things. Okay. This is me talking right now, very candidly. One of them used to be alcohol. It's not alcohol anymore. Um, but now it's either raisin bran, right? Or cereal, just food, you know, food to like sort of numb the pain. Um, it's work. I, I always love to work. I love, love, love to work. You know, <laughs> typically like a creative endeavor. Um, it's typically not my law practice, but it's always something that can make me money. Always something that can sort of silence this narrative of there's never enough. So for me, it's it's work is a big one. And then the last one, which is kind of embarrassing, is books. I have books. I have so many books. I could never read all the books that I have. And yet still, when I'm hungry or when I'm angry or lonely or tired, what I'll do is I'll reach for some new book that I think might sort of solve the problem, whether it's on Audible or Amazon or whatever. So when my willpower is at its lowest, these are the things, things I reach for. And so these are the things that can be substitutes for reaching out to God and saying, okay, God, I'm feeling these emotions. I'm sensing this stress. I'm feeling this pain. I'm bringing it to you. And I'm asking you to help me sort of sort it out. Or or these are also the things that can keep me from doing the hard work of going to my spiritual director or going to my therapist. Because I think somehow these things can like sort of numb the pain. Um, But the truth is they're they're really cheap substitutes for the the kind of healing that that we really are looking for and need. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. The book piece, you like briefly touched on that in the last episode and I was listening to it. Um, My husband was nearby as I was listening to it and you mentioned something about the books and he was like, you need to have him over to come see your bookshelf, Holly. (laughs) 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 Because I resonate with that. Oh, so, so well. So yeah. Anyways. Sorry, Robert, that's what were actually, you just going to say? <laughs> nope. That's this. I was going to comment on a very similar thing. I was going to mm. say, you know, you, you said it's kind of embarrassing, it's books. But I think that a lot of people either resonate specifically with that, which I know that Holly and I both do. Yes. <laughs> or, you know, it's the therapist and me kind of getting behind that. But like the idea that, okay, when I'm uncomfortable, you know, my my response is like, can I figure this out more? Can mm-hmm. If I could just get more knowledge or more information or like something yeah. like that, right? Like this kind of self-improvement or or more understanding. Like I think a lot of people probably resonate with kind of the, the general gist of that, even if they don't end up, if they're angry at night, buying books on Amazon or whatever, right. which I'm definitely not speaking from experience. Or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Gu- guilty as charged. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No. Yeah, and, and and I think it's important too to say like it can be anything. Like I was I was meeting with somebody uh, yesterday. We've been talking in my local community a lot about deaths of despair, and the reason we're talking about this is because um, I've had two acquaintances in the last two weeks die by suicide, and they are roughly in my demographic. They, by all outward appearances, appeared uh, to be you know very stable. Uh, okay, sort of upwardly mobile, and and they're both gone. And we have been talking about that a lot lately, and, and I was meeting with somebody who doesn't particularly have any uh, sort of faith and bent or background, 
And, and he said, you know, I'm no different. Like there are times when I feel like I'm stuck in this cage of performance, this American cycle, cyclical uh, performance-based uh, story. There are pain, times when I don't feel enough. I feel the pain of not being enough for my wife and for my kids, not providing enough. And, and he said, you know, I think the thing that's saving me right now is photography. Like I reach for my camera, I go hit the streets, I spend an hour shooting photographs, and somehow I, I equalize. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. That's actually a, a good mechanism, particularly if you don't have any sort of like faith background or bent. You know, beauty and art can be one of those things that stabilizes us. But to the extent that it is continuing to reach for the camera, reflexively reach for the camera when that sort of despair sets in instead of reaching for the camera and on the walk, reaching out to God and saying, okay, God, help me see the goodness that you bring to the land of living. Help me experience you. Talk to me as I'm out here taking these photographs, like connect with me through this photography. Like that photography alone will never be enough. If we treat it as the ends, it will never be enough. And so it can actually become this sort of disordered attachment, this sort of thing that we think will save us that actually doesn't have the power to save us long term. And so anything can be treated this way as a sort of an addiction or a coping mechanism that's disordered. Book buying, photography, work, shopping, uh, food, booze, porn, any of these things that provide an escape without drawing us through to God can really constitute the underlying stuff of addiction. Mm-hmm. No, that's really, that's good. And you're right. It's, it is anything. But I like how you really kind of walk through that process with the photography. Like even it could be something that's going to help us in these seasons to see God more, but then it can become disordered on its own. I think that's really well put. There were three steps that I highlighted in the book that I really appreciated you talking about. And you had written, you said, I've come to see waking into a more holistic sobriety is involving three steps. One, wake to your pain and invite God into it. Two, wake to your coping mechanisms, your lesser loves, and confess them. And then three, wake to the divine love and pursue it as best you can. Do you mind unpacking these three steps for us? Yes. So this is this really the, kind of the crux of the book. I mean, it, it, this is the, the, the last run of the book. And I've kind of throughout this book, like if you view it as an argument, hopefully a really creative and sort of fun, jaunty argument, but still an argument. <laughs> um, I think I'm kind of concluding here by saying like, okay, here's, here's some steps. Here's some things we can do, right? So one, we've kind of touched on this already, wake to the pain. So know what your pain is. Know what the shape of your pain is. How do you do that? Well, you can either look at, you know, when is the time that you just like always seem to cry? Or when do you always seem to get angry? Or when do you always feel alone? You can also look at the pain narrative that you tell yourself. Are you plagued by this idea that there's never enough? Well, if so, then your pain is probably scarcity. Go back to the first time that you saw scarcity in your life and really start to mine your life for this thread of, of, of scarcity. You know, is it loss? Is it abuse? Again, kind of go back through your life and look at the times um, when that narrative, when that pain point sort of uh, uh, showed it itself or reared its ugly head. So that's the first step is really understanding what your pain is. And then also to be clear, like 
a lot of times when you unpack or unravel or figure out what this pain is, like you need a therapist, right? You need somebody to talk to who can really help you understand emotionally what you're mm-hmm. going through. So, so wake to the pain, do it in community, do it with a therapist, uh, do, you know, make sure you invite your spouse into it if you're married or your significant other, if you're not. Um, the second thing is wake to your coping mechanisms. And so know what the thing is that you reach for. This is kind of what we talked about in the, in the HALT acronym. Um, but, but also just like know yourself, know what, what you like, know what you tend to use uh, as an outlet for pain. So, you know, for me, it, it may be as simple as looking at your uh, Amazon shopping cart as it is for me. Um, so right now I have, uh, four books, uh, camera lens, uh, two pair of shoes and let's see, is there anything else? Nope. That's pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, that pretty much sums up the things I reach for in pain. There's no cereal in there, but yeah, like shopping, like shoes, books, cameras. Um, these are the things that I reach for when I'm in pain and I've got them all staged in my Amazon shopping cart right now. Uh, and I'll never buy them, but they're there. But right? they're there, so know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so know the things that you reach for. And then the last one, I mean, once you wake to your pain, once you know your pain, once you wake to the things that you use to cope in pain, right? Like once you know your coping mechanisms, your bad habits, your addictions, your attachments, then it's time to wake to the divine love and take these things to the divine love. And this is where I really think the payoff for me of the book is because we need a new way of talking about waking to the divine love in the American church. Mm. And maybe that's a bold statement, but, but here's what I see. And then maybe we can talk about this a little bit. I, I see mm-hmm. a spirituality, a Christian spirituality right now that's so in its head and so in the realm mm-hmm. of ideas that it is not expressed in a bodily way. You know, we just entered Lent. And the Lenten season liturgically is meant to, like, get us in our bodies. But we're so proud of our theology, and we're so proud of our intellect, um, that so often we take these heady concepts of theology and of God, and we go out into the world And we're rubbing up against this sense of precarity, as my friend said yesterday, that that nothing is substantive, that nothing holds up, that everything's burning down and falling apart. And we're so in our heads that we don't know what to do with it. And I think waking to the divine love is actually moving out of our heads and into our bodies. It's actually saying, God, you have given me good things to counteract these narratives You've actually, you know, you've given me practices that I can do that are in my body to push back against these narratives. You've given me a meal to eat, you know, uh, I'm talking about the Eucharist now, um, mm-hmm. that, that fills me in a different uh, sort of way that connects me with you in a different sort of way in my body to let me know that when everything else is burning down around me, when all the stress and all the pain of the world is, is coming down on me, like you haven't left me in my head to figure it out. You've actually given me embodied practices to live it out. And I think this is the real challenge and the move for the American church in the next you know, decade for sure um, and, and, and probably the next 100 or 200 years. Mm-hmm. 
No, I, yeah, I think you're spot on. I was just messaging with Robert that this is stuff I've just in this exact same vein. Um, I just totally am with you on this. I think that you're right. In a lot of ways, we have cut off in some ways, our own connection to our body is a form of worship. And I think about the ways in which walking a labyrinth connects me to God so much more than just focusing on reading and learning and memorizing certain pieces of um, theology or scripture that, you know, there's just seasons where we need all of it. We, we can't just rely on one, but we really do need to integrate the mind, body, and heart in our ways of practicing our faith and in living out our faith. And I think you're right, like this process of waking up, as you've been writing about, it really is an invitation to pay attention to what's going on in our bodies too, and and how that's connected to our faith and our spirituality. Yeah. Yeah. So like for me, every Monday morning, I start my Monday the same way. And it's in a, a little adoration chapel here at Fayetteville. It's in silence and solitude in that prayer time. You know, there's a lot of head stuff that happens there. I pray in my head because it's silent. Right? I read the scriptures, but also I kneel. And also sometimes I stand mm-hmm. and also sometimes I sit. And also as I go into the room, I, you know, make the sign of the cross. Like th- there are these embodied things that I do that signal that I'm actually using my body in this place of prayer. I'm actually using my body in this place of, of worship or whatever it is. And and that, and I think that's a critical component. I, I mean, you know, all the therapists I talk to say that's that's a critical component in mental health. It's actually getting into your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. connecting that with worship is is no different. Yeah. 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 So good. I think about how often I have conversations with clients or anyone else, right, about the difference between cognitively knowing something and experientially knowing something, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, oh, well, I know God loves me, but it doesn't feel like that at any point, right? Mm -hmm. Like this difference between the body sense, right? And then this just kind of cognitive, like, Mm -hmm. well, sure, theoretically. And, you know, I had a, a professor in grad school that always said experience changes experience, right? Like you have to be experiencing things for then that to be the way that you experience things. Mm -hmm. And so I think doing these practices and things like that is what ends up leading to like being able to experience that versus just cognitively knowing something, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and this is actually like, this isn't a new notion. This is actually written in the scriptures. Um, Right. In Mm -hmm. in Ephesians, Paul says, don't be drunk on wine, but read your Bible and get all the knowledge and then everything's cool. No, that's not what he says. He says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. And then here's the key, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the spirit. That is the most bizarre passage, in my opinion, in all the Bible. Like, don't be drunk, but get around people and sing to each other. (laughs) Right? It's just, it's so, uh, it's a weird thing to say, but I think, I think the point here is that, that when you're experiencing these dark cycles, when you're experiencing these seasons of disconnectedness and these seasons of doubt and these seasons of, of isolation and drunkenness, like put yourself into the embodied community. Hold hands with the embodied community. Sing songs with your voice with the embodied community. Be together mm. in your bodies and in this way, we sort of find this, this new way of connecting 
that pulls us out of the drunkenness and into this sort of waking life. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I'm glad we were able to move into that discussion around embodying our faith. I think that that's really important in this whole process of waking up because I do think that it is learning from what it is that our heart's telling us, our head's telling us, and our body is telling us that we are able to actually discern what it is that we need to wake up from and to. So that's really good. One thing that we also wanted to touch on too is a little bit about the role of loved ones in this process. So do you mind, I know you just sing praises about Amber and I love seeing how you're, you know, talking about her getting back into her writing and, but tell us a little bit about the role of loved ones, like within your process and just kind of in this whole process of waking up. Yeah, this is a really tricky one for me because frankly, I'm not an expert on anything other than what I experienced. So I I can only really speak to my experience. But so Amber, who is, I mean, amazing, my wife, a writer in her own right, a phenomenal writer, a poet. um, And and really, we sort of fell in love over this like shared affinity for for art and beauty. And um, when I came to her and said, I think I had a drinking problem, there was not a whiff of judgment. Um, of course, she had confronted me um, several months before and just kind of said, hey, do you think you might have a have a problem? And of course, I said, no, I can quit whenever I want. But uh, but she really stuck, stuck by me uh, through the whole process and didn't judge me before she brought alcohol back into the house because, she, you know, she did not quit drinking and I didn't expect her to. Um, We had a long conversation about whether that was okay. Over the years, we've had conversations about like, is there a season or is there a time when I raise a toast at a wedding, you know, and that's okay. Like, how do we navigate these tricky areas of me writing about sobriety and, and, you know, shifting views on alcohol and views on alcohol in the house. And she has been a sounding board, a partner, a lover uh, through the whole thing. Um, And for me, that's been probably the thing that's created the most stability outside of just this notion of of daily connection and and silence and solitude with the divine love. But, But I will say as much as she is a huge factor in my life, I know that everybody doesn't have that. So um, it it can be really tricky if you don't have an understanding partner. Um, And again, that's why I go back to the waking community. Like if you don't have an understanding partner and and whether that looks like judgmentalism or whether that looks like uh, uh, you can't, certainly you don't have a problem. I'm just going to keep drinking and, you know, you'll, you know, one day you'll join me again at the bar. You know, it, it can look both ways. But if you're in that situation, then you do have to surround yourself with other loved ones who will support you and be that community of support. And so that's where things like AA or like CR or like a church group or or whatever loving support you can find, uh, it's necessary. You got to have it. You got to have people who have your back and steal your legs and support you through the process. Hopefully that's your spouse, your significant other. Uh, your partner, but if it's not, then, you know, you gotta, you gotta find someone who will. Yeah. 
I think, and I think you're, you're absolutely right. You do need to find someone and ideally it is, you know, your partner if, if you have one, but I know even my sister and I, there are ways in which right now for the last couple of months, we've removed some things within each of our lives and we'll check in with one another regularly when it's like, oh, I'm having a hard day and, man, you know, I, I really wish I could just have, you know, three cups of coffee today because I'm so tired, even though I'm trying to go down to one or, you know, having that drink of alcohol when, you know, my sister and I both are not drinking right now. And there's just having someone to just check in with and help through the one day Mm -hmm. at a time process is so important. So yeah, I love, I love that Amber was able to be that for you and, and having others around you through your experience. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a really close group of friends. Um, I guess it's three, three couples really. Um, and, and, and the men and the women both have a really vested interest and not like sort of living out prescriptives with me, but living into the actual spirit of what I've been writing about, you know, connection to the divine love. And they really ask me questions, not just, or hold my feet to the fire, even, you know, not just around alcohol, but like all things. And I think that's super important too, is that we are surrounded by people who aren't just keying in on like one issue, like booze or porn, yeah. but who are saying, okay, how do we sort of take a, a broader view? Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. So in the book, right, you write about kind of this prayer template in terms of kind of overcoming or ordering attachments. And we're using the word attachment here, not necessarily in like attachment theory way. So I feel like I should say yes. that, but you, uh, you talk about this prayer template. Can you uh, explain that and then maybe give us an example or two? Yeah. So this is really hard really hard um so this sort of this sort of notion around uh the prayer of opposites is really hard and it is the the prayer template really for ordering our attachments so to give a a quick and a brief primer um a lot of this comes from saint Ignatius of loyola who was a spanish monk and came up with these spiritual exercises his spiritual exercises for his community and in his um spiritual exercises he said that uh, the the primary aim is to love, serve, and reverence God above all created things. Okay, so number one, God at the top. Um, number two, created things underneath it. And then he says, and to use only those things, those created things, so far as they lead us to love, serve, and reverence God. So that's kind of step two. And then step three is, um, to the extent that things do not help us love, serve, and reverence God, get rid of them, like sayonara, Mm. they're gone. They're no longer in our lives, right? Or or at least we order them under the divine love and only use them so far as they pull us into and through to attachment with God. So one of the things he would say then is to the extent that money causes you to uh, put it above God, like you chase money, you chase work above God, then you should pray the prayer of opposites. Pray the prayer that says, uh, Lord, make me impoverished so that I wouldn't chase the created money over the creator, you. Or to the extent that you have this sort of, uh, like an eating addiction, Lord, I pray that you would uh, draw me through to a time of fasting 
which is what we're doing in Lent, right? Fasting so that I wouldn't, so that I wouldn't put the created thing over you. So it's this idea that you pray the opposite of whatever it is that you're struggling with. So if you're struggling with alcohol addiction, it's super simple. Lord, I pray that you would give me the wisdom and the fortitude to go without alcohol so that I could connect to you. And some of these things are trickier than others. Right? Like you can't give up eating forever. So um, there's a, a secondary sort of prayer template or prayer rubric, imaginative prayer idea that you can use, which is uh, he writes about in um, his exercise on eating and drinking. And he says, you know, some things are prone, more prone, when you go to the table, some things are more prone to be attachments. You know, maybe not bread, but maybe meat, maybe uh, high fat, high sugar desserts, delicacies, as he would say, uh, maybe wine. And so when you go to the table, you have to eat, right? You can't pray the prayer of opposites for food forever. It's not going to work. You'll die. So when you go to the table, instead, imagine Christ and his disciples at the table with you and then eat as they would eat and drink as they would drink. Mm. And so the whole idea that he's trying to get us to contemplate is to the extent that we can cut off the things uh, completely that uh, destroy or, or dis disrupt our connection with the divine love, then we do that. But to the extent that we still have to use them, you know, we still have to shop because we have to eat. Uh, we have to have clothes. We still have to eat to the extent that, that we have to do certain things. Then in prayer, we imagine Jesus with us as we do them and we uh, act as he would act in that situation. You know, and, so and the good. ramifications for this are really far reaching, um, particularly for people who might not consider themselves classic alcoholics, but might say, you know, I do kind of have a drinking problem. I do have a dependency issue. Every time I go to a wedding, golly, I get blitzed. Or every time I go to a party, I get blitzed. Um, you know, through the week, I may be okay. But every Saturday, Sunday, you know, when the NFL comes on, I pound the beer or whatever it is. That to that person, I would say, maybe you do need to pray the prayer of opposites, but maybe what you need to do is ask and invite Jesus into that situation with you, imagine him with you, and then raise the champagne glass for the toast as he would, drink the beer as mm. he would, participate in the party as he would. We know he participated in a very good party in which he turned water to wine. So we know he wasn't opposed to these things. He wasn't opposed to the created things. But he did have an order for them. And so uh, this idea is that we would participate in that created thing as he would. Um, and that is a really hard prayer rubric, both the prayer of opposites and the participation as he would. Those are hard things that I haven't mastered. Um, but, you know, I, I hope to make that the rest of a life's work. Yeah. I love, yeah. I mean, I love the way that you outlined it in the book because I do know that this could easily slip into a pretty legalistic um, frame, you know, of approaching things. And yet the way that I think you write about it and the way you just talked about it does highlight that there's also grace in this and that it isn't to be another thing that we white knuckle through or that, mm -mm. you know, we need to be really rigid about, but that there's grace in this too. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the statistics on this sort of white knuckling, they're kind of bleak. So even though there's really good therapeutic stuff there, right. In AA, like go to it. So good. 
the sort of long-term idea that we're just going to white knuckle our way through this and that we're going to say, you know, a particular set of rubrics and, and somehow achieve long-term emotional health, stability, and sobriety, it just doesn't bear out in the statistics. Yeah. So there's, there's one quote in this book that I just, I have loved going back to it over and over. And I, experientially have just really found this to be true in my own life, but I felt like these words just beautifully echoed um, this process of waking up in which you say, waking gives way to waking, which gives way to waking, which gives way to waking. And you refer to these waking practices throughout the book that not only serve you to begin to waking, wake up, but that it it ripples out into these other areas in which you begin to wake up. So I'd really love for you to unpack this quote for our listeners and just mm-hmm. and just this whole process. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, this was a very particular experience that I think is it was micro to me, but I think it could be meta to the listeners too. So for me, when I stopped um, drinking, there was this really particular moment, and it was a couple weeks in, three weeks in, um, and a couple of things happened. I was playing guitar and drinking tea. And I was drinking this very, very uh, nuanced tea that my wife, that Amber had had bought. Um, And I remember taking a sip of it and all of a sudden sort of being able to taste all the flavors, like every uh, flavor that was in this, this tea, this like strawberry and, and rose and white tea. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, this is what it means to wake up to the sense of smelling and tasting. After I'd like blitzed my taste buds and my nostrils with gin for, you know, over a year, mm. like, oh, I'm clear headed. I can taste again. I can smell again. So it was this idea that the waking gave way to this, this waking of the senses, this waking to the tastes. And I was also playing guitar and I don't, I don't think I wrote about this in the book, but I started to find that I could actually do things on the fretboard that I hadn't been able to do in years, uh, Mm. mostly because, you know, I was clear headed. So it gave way, like the waking gave way to this, this waking of not just the senses, but also uh, my ability to, to do some things with my fingers on the fretboard. And then as I continued to walk through this process of waking, I started to wake to the things that I loved, that I hadn't pursued, you know, to, to art, uh, to, again, like I said, to music. My, my writing seemed to get better. I was, uh, you know, everything about the way that I sort of carried myself just sort of changed. And then as I began to, to sort of wake into this new body, I began to experience, oh man, you know, I have these, these really dark areas in my life where I've just harbored unforgiveness and I haven't forgiven people. And I need to kind of do mm. some exploration there. And so I moved into this notion of waking into forgiveness and, and, and even, you know, that's kind of the, the culmination of the journey and coming clean my first book. But then even as I walked away from my first book, I found that I continued to wake to things. Like I woke to this idea that really what I had done is I had disordered my attachments and that God has given me mechanisms to reorder those things through prayer, uh, for me through Eucharistic practices, uh, through a, a liturgy where I sit, stand, kneel, and move my body. Um, so in this way, like when you wake from your pain, 
when you wake from your coping mechanisms and addictions and when you wake to this notion that the divine love wants to lead you along, that gives way to waking after waking after waking after waking. It's the journey. It's this mm. journey of faith and life. Um, and every day is a new waking. And, and uh, that's what I experienced. And, and you know, I, I say this at the end of the book, if I were a, a gambling man, which is, you know, kind of funny because gambling is one of those things that we maybe need to awake from. But I'd wager uh, that I'm not done waking yet, that there are other things in my life that tomorrow, next month, next year, that I'll say, oh, man, I didn't see that. You know, yeah. but now that I'm in participation um, with the divine love, those things will continue to be revealed. That's the hope. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's so good. Seth, thanks so much for joining us. Let me ask you this. What is, you know, you've spent all this time writing this book and all of that, right? What's your, what would you say is your hope for this book as it has launched into the world? Yeah, I think my hope would be two things. One, I do, you know, I said this earlier in the podcast, and I do believe that we have become a people of faith who are so centered on our heads, in our heads, and in our knowledge, particularly in our special knowledge, all the air quotes in the world around that, um, that we've forgotten how to use our bodies to connect with the goodness of God in the land of the living, and how to use the created things to really draw us through to him. Uh, my, I think my, my primary hope is that we would wake from our coping mechanisms, our attachments, these created things that we use as an end of themselves, um, and that we would wake from this special knowledge and that we would wake into an experience of how those things connect us to God. So that's my primary goal, is that people would wake into a new way of sobriety that they would sort of order all things under the divine love of God and that they would experience that divine love of God in the land of the living. Um, that's a lofty goal, but I think, you know, the book hopefully lays out how we get there. Um, but the second thing is, and this is, this is a, a more audacious hope. My more audacious hope is that people come to understand and know this material so well that they can lead others through it. You know, mm. that they could say, you know, hey, let's grab a few copies of this and let's go through this together. And I'm going to walk you through this process and I'm going to join you in the process. We're going to wake from the things we're attached to. We're going to walk out of addiction and bad habits and coping mechanisms. We're going to walk into the divine love and I'm going to be your guide so that it, it has a lot less to do with me and more to do with the reader as the guide. And then, you know, ultimately one day it would be my significant hope that my book isn't even needed anymore, that the person would own it so much that they could just walk the person through the process without ever referencing my book. Um, so that's the hope, because I think at that point we, we really start to see ownership of what it means to live deeply and authentically into the divine love of God. Yeah. Oh, man, I loved this conversation with you, Seth, and I'm just so grateful for this time that we've had to, to chat with you. Listeners, if you would like to connect with Seth, you can find him at sethhaines.com or he's on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram at Seth Haynes. 
Um, you can connect with Robert at robert-vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. Um, you could connect with me at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter um, at hollyoxhandler. And y'all, I we just really want to recommend that y'all go pick up this book, The Book of Waking Up, wherever you buy your books. Again, Seth, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Well, uh, well, first, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I would say uh, to the listeners, go grab a copy of this book, grab two copies of this book, walk through it with someone else and, and really uh, take the time to digest it and to move into something that, that really looks like a new way of thinking about sobriety into a, a way that looks like connectedness um, to God and to your community. And that looks like inner sobriety, true inner sobriety. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.